Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 26, excuse me, 21 through 26. And let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we are gathered here today with one single purpose, that is to worship you, to glorify you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord God, that our worship would be pleasing to you, Lord, that our fellowship would be pleasing, that the singing has been pleasing, but that also the reading and the preaching of your word would be pleasing. Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you have from us in your word, that it would be efficacious to us, Lord, that it would be planted in our hearts, that it would, it would take root, and then it would grow and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray, Lord God, as we explore the glories of the gospel, Lord God, that our hearts would be moved to, to sing your praises, but more than that, that it would lead us out of here, worshiping you, sharing the hope of Christ with the rest of the world. We thank you for that. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His own blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the time, at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges once wrote, To be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. It means God has imputed or charged our guilt of our sins to His Son, Jesus Christ, and has imparted or credited Christ's righteousness to us. One of the most important, I think, theological questions that any man could answer is this question, how can a holy, just, righteous God pardon and have fellowship with sinful, depraved, and unrighteous men? How can God, who is pure light, have communion and fellowship with those who dwell in the pit of, of darkness of their sin? More specifically, how could 
How can a just God pardon an unjust man and forgive him while at the same time remaining just himself? This is one of the most important questions that theologians can wrestle with. This is one of the most important questions that, that mankind needs to deal with. It's more important than the question of the meaning of life. This is more important than, you know, who's going to win the next election. This is more important, vastly more important, than the question of, will I have enough money to retire on? And it's certainly a lot more important than who's going to win the Super Bowl. How can a holy, righteous, and just God pardon and have fellowship with sinful, rebellious, depraved men and still himself be just? Because think about this. If God simply just forgives sins and just sweeps them under the rug as if they don't exist anymore, then he is not just. Some people suppose that he would be, but he's not. Some people say, well, why can't God just forgive? If he just sweeps sin under the rug, he is not just. Because if you think about this, right, justice demands that sin be punished. Justice demands that wrongdoing be judged. When a judge in our world lets a criminal go free who we know to be guilty, what do we say then about him? That he is unjust. Because justice demands that wrongs be made right. Justice demands that criminals be punished. We all know this instinctively. Justice demands that sin be dealt with. And because God is just, or more precisely, justice finds its identity in God that he can't simply just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just overlook it. He can't just act like it doesn't exist. That would make him unjust. And so he must do justice and punish sin. Otherwise, he would be unjust. But on the other hand, if God judges sin and gives all of mankind what he deserves, then none of us would survive. None of us. Because we all deserve the opposite of his pardon. We would all be destined for hell because we know that none is righteous. All of us have sinned. If God gives everyone what they deserve, then there is no hope for anyone because the only thing that we deserve from the hand of God is his wrath and his judgment. That's what we've earned. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve joy. We don't deserve his goodness. And we certainly don't deserve to be spared from our sins. If you do if you think that you deserve to be spared from your sins, then just think back in history to yesterday and think of how many times you have transgressed and sinned. And so God, if he judges sin and gives us what we deserve, then there is no hope for anyone. As, as, the, the, as King David said in the Psalms, he said, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So how is it possible then that for God to be reconciled to mankind? Well, the overwhelming answer that comes from almost every part of the world, especially in the world of religion, the answer always comes from the law or some type of obedience to an ideal. Mankind will tell you that mankind must do something to merit or to earn or to deserve forgiveness. 
And the general way that, 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 that this works out is mankind must then do something that counteracts all of the evil that he has done. And what we typically imagine then is these cosmic scales out there somewhere that weigh us in the balance. And that on the one side, you place all of the evil things that, that we've ever done. And then on the other side, you place all the good things that, that you do. And the goal is to do enough good things through obedience and charity and love and sacrifice to cause the good side of the scale to outweigh the bad side of the scale, thereby earning pardon or forgiveness or heaven. By the way, this is the default mindset of all of humanity. This is how most people view the way things work with God. This is, why people, this is what, they, what, what people mean when they say that I'm a good person. When you talk to people and you ask them, why would, should you go to heaven? They say, I'm a good person. Why are you a good person? Because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I mean, I do bad things. I'll admit that. I'm a, I, I do make mistakes, but, but I do more good than I do bad. So because of that, and on that basis, I deserve to be pardoned or forgiven. But the problem is we have recently seen in the last few verses, as Paul tells us in Romans, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one's getting saved by keeping the rules. No one is, is getting saved by doing good things. Not to mention, we're told that our good deeds will never outweigh our bad deeds. The prophet Isaiah says very clearly, we have all become like one who is unclean in all of our righteousness, our righteous deeds, all that we can do to make God love us and be pleased with us are like a polluted garment. They're trash before God. He goes so far to say, as we all like a leaf fade in our iniquities, those evil deeds like the wind take us away. And the reason why right, the world's religions fail to reconcile us to God is because they require man to somehow, by his own effort, to, to earn his way to God. But man's efforts can't do that. They are doomed to fail. He can't. It is impossible. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how sincere you feel either. One of the things that people say all the time is, well, you know, God, he must be a good person because he's such a sincere believer. Your sincerity will not save you. It doesn't matter how nice you are, compassionate you are, how generous you are. There is nothing that you can do to make the cosmic scales balance out in your favor. And so if God and man were to be reconciled, then it must be done by Him, not us. But how does God accomplish this? How does, Paul, how does God pardon sinners, but at the same time still preserve the nature of His justice because He can't just sweep our sins under the rug? Well, the answer to this important question is found in the text that we have before us today. John Stott says of this particular text that it's the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, he goes so far to say this is the heart of the gospel right here. I got the goosebumps. I've been so excited to get to this and preach this text. Dr. Leon Morris says this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. That's a huge statement. The most important paragraph ever written, and I'm inclined to agree with him. And so in that, with that in mind, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And Paul begins with a simple transition, but now. 
what you need to realize is this, these, this little phrase, but now, is a major turning point. A transition point in Paul's explanation of the gospel, shifting from the bad news to the good news. We've been exploring the bad news of the gospel for a couple months now. I mean, we've been walking through every bit of that from, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. This phrase right here is a transition from the bad news of the gospel to the good news of the gospel. But we need to also see this phrase is an indication that there has been a major transition in redemptive history as well. This isn't just theological, it's historical as well. Because the past, in the past, those who were saved by God, who were never made right with Him by obedience to the law or rituals, right? there are people in the past, Old Testament saints, they were not saved by the law or their rituals. In fact, that was the last point that Paul made, that nobody is saved by the works of the law. In fact, Paul begins his gospel unpacking the problem that all of humanity faces. He says, that mankind by his nature is unrighteous, that he is by his nature sinful, including both the, Jew, the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the law and religion and nationality cannot change that. All of mankind stands exactly on the same ground under the wrath of God. But we know that throughout history before Christ, there have been people obviously that belong to God, right? People that have been trusting in Him. People that have, that have had their hope in Him. God's elect. People who would be redeemed at some point. Like Adam, Abraham, King David, the prophets. Millions of people throughout history holding on to something. All of them followed God in the hope that they would eventually be reconciled to God. And none of these people's reconciliation came on the basis of their ability to keep the law or to do good things. The basis of their future reconciliation had not come in their lifetime. It was an event that they longed for, and that was the coming of the Messiah. That's what we see when Paul talks about Abraham in chapter 4. He believed God and God's promises, and on that basis it was counted to him as righteousness. He was trusting in the fulfillment of the promise of the one to come. But now, as Paul says, that fulfillment has come because Christ has come into the world to reconcile God to man. This is what they've been hoping for for thousands of years. And so the transition, this transition marked by Paul's words, but now is both historic from the old covenant to the new, and in this transition is also a transition in the gospel itself as Paul moves from the bad news to, of, of man's condition to the good news of God's grace. And so understand, this is a huge turning point in this letter. And so Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's hard to, un it's hard to understate this or to overstate this. But this is a gigantic statement that Paul's making here. But now, historically, theologically, the righteousness of God is made visible. It is now apparent. It can be seen. It has been made manifest. And this declaration is an echo of what Paul said in the beginning of his letter where he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, same phrase, is revealed from faith for faith that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This should help us to understand that this is a major theme of, of, of Paul's gospel. Righteousness is a major theme throughout his entire letter. More specifically, the righteousness of God. Paul makes a point to declare that this righteousness of God has been manifested and revealed and made known. So let's take a moment and talk about what this is, what this righteousness of God is. Because obviously... It's important in this discussion because the righteousness of God is mentioned four times in this little short paragraph. I don't know if you realize that. Four times. And the subject of righteousness is mentioned seven times from chapter one to now, not to mention all the references to the opposite of righteousness, which is unrighteousness. You'll see the subject of righteousness and unrighteousness is a repeated theme throughout this entire gospel. And so righteousness, God, specifically God's righteousness, is an important theme for us to get our heads wrapped around here. So what does Paul mean by, by the righteousness of God here in this text? Well, first, he can be referring to God's own character. God's own righteous character and his own righteousness. Because the truth is, all of righteousness has its identity in God himself. Because God, by his nature, is righteous. And so this righteousness is his perfection, and this certainly has some bearing on this expression that he's used here. But Paul, I think, has more in mind than just the character of God when he says the righteousness of God. He could also be referring to God's action towards men. God's goodness towards men can be described as his righteousness, his goodness, his benevolence, his providential care are all part of God's righteousness toward mankind this too probably is has some bearing on what paul is getting at here but then there's also one other thing he could be referring to that the righteousness of god is god's gift of righteousness to man the gift of righteousness the gift of being made right with god by his grace and i believe this is what paul has in view here because we know, right, righteousness is required in order for us to have fellowship with God. In order to be in the presence of God, one must be completely righteous. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. As we talked about, this is the issue that all mankind faces. We, are we or are we not righteous before God? And then we talked about how the law itself points to that righteousness. The law is God's standard of perfection and righteousness. This righteousness is a requirement to be in fellowship with a righteous God. What is required is to be perfectly righteous before Him. Which then, as we have talked about, is impossible. Because no one can be righteous before God. No one on their own can keep the perfect requirements of the law. And so if we're going to be righteous before God, then we need for God to supernaturally gift us that righteousness. But how does God gift us that righteousness in a way that doesn't excuse our sin and make Him unjust? That is the question, and that is what's revealed in Jesus Christ. 
Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. The statement before was big, but this is an earth-shattering statement. This is a statement of epic proportions. This is a statement that all that should cause us all to stand up and shout for joy. The righteousness of God that we need to be right with God is manifested and is now available through faith in Christ. Now before we, we get too far down that road, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Because notice Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. In other words, this is a righteousness that does not come from the law or obedience to the law. I don't know if you understand how big this statement is. This is a righteousness, the righteousness that we need to be reconciled to God that transcends the law because the law itself can't make you righteous. And the reason why it can't make you righteous besides the fact that you can't keep it is the fact the law, through, though through obedience, it might produce in you some external conformity to a set of rules, but the law can't change your heart. The law might, might be able to make you a rule follower. The law might make you a legalist, but the law can't transform you from the inside out. It can't change your heart. Remember, you are a sinner not because you sin. You sin because you are by nature a sinner. It's who you are. If a sinner becomes disciplined and forces himself to keep the rules, that doesn't change who he is. It just changes his behavior. It doesn't change his nature. And if you're a parent, you understand exactly what I'm talking about here. When you have a child who's prone to do bad things like act out or be violent, you might be able to enforce the rules in a very stern way and conform their behavior by giving rules and enforcing them. But that in and of itself will not change their hearts. It'll make them compliant, but it won't change their hearts. That's why parents... As parents, what we do is we, we talk to our kids. We reason with our kids. We love them even through the disciplining process because what we want is not simply for their behavior to change. We want their hearts to change because we know if their hearts change, their behavior will follow. And this is the same thing with righteousness. The righteousness we need to be right in the eyes of God is not an ex external conformity to a set of rules. The righteousness we need is something internal in nature. We need to be transformed. And so this righteousness of God that has been manifested is a righteousness apart from the law because it's superior to the righteousness that any law can produce. But notice Paul says, even though that the righteousness is apart from the law, it has been revealed by the law. Paul says, the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, this is important for us to understand because so many people think, or so many people, when you ask the question, how are the Old Testament saints saved? They will invariably say that they were saved by the Old Covenant. They are saved by keeping the law. 
Theologically, they will want to preserve this national distinction of Israel from the rest of the world to the point that they unbearably believe that God has had throughout history two different peoples with two different plans of redemption. In fact, there's a very famous, uh, very famous wealthy preacher in Houston, Texas, who believed that Jews are still saved by the law in the Old Covenant and that we shouldn't even try to evangelize them. He even says as much, right? Because he believes that God's plan of salvation is different for the Jews than it is for us. He says they're saved by the Old Testament where Christians are saved by Christ in the New Testament. But hear me. God ultimately, I don't care about nationally, God ultimately has but one people, and that's his elect, those whom he's been redeeming throughout history that's made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue throughout history. And he's always had only one plan of redemption. There has never been a plan B. It's always been plan A through Christ. The Old Testament saints looked forward to that plan of redemption. Why? Because it was revealed in the law and the prophets. It was expressed in the Old Testament. Paul says the Old Testament bears witness to it. The righteousness of God, His character, and His actions towards mankind, and the gift of righteousness that man needs to be reconciled to God was not a new idea invented by Paul in the New Testament. It was expressed and taught throughout the Old Testament. It was evident in the Old Testament law and the law uh, and the rituals. All of those things pointed forward to something greater than themselves. It was evident in the sacrificial system. As we know, all that pointed forward to Christ. It was evident in the prophets, because what are the prophets were they telling Israel to look forward to the coming of the Messiah? The Old Testament bears witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, salvation has always, always, always been about faith. The righteous. When the righteousness that a person needs to be reconciled to God has never been about obedience to a law. It's always been about faith. And it's always been about the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. They didn't know His name in the Old Testament, but they called Him the Messiah. They called Him the Son of God. They were looking forward to Him. He's always been the object of their faith. God promised the Messiah in Genesis. If you think back, when He said to the woman, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And they believed that promise. God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his seed, singular seed, through his son Christ. And the Bible tells us that he believed God and was counted as righteousness. David, when, he, when you read through the Psalms, what do you see? Reference over and over and over again to the Messiah, to the Messiah over and over again. The prophets, over and over again, point the nation of Israel forward to the coming of the Christ. By the way, which is the Greek word for Messiah. That, by the way, is why they were anticipating His arrival. That's why there was so much messianic fervor when Jesus arrived. They were expecting Him to come. They could see it. It was evident. It was witnessed in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament bore witness to the to the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ. But Paul is saying this righteousness of God is now revealed in history in Christ. The Old Testament pointed forward to it, but now in Christ, 
in his incarnation and his work on the cross and through his resurrection, this righteousness of God is fully revealed in time and space in Jesus Christ. The hope of all those who had gone before trusting in the promise has now been realized in Christ. Notice Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested. The full manifestation of God's righteousness has now happened. That is why he uses the phrase past tense. People look forward to it, right? They were looking forward to it, and now it has happened. And it's seen by those who have faith. But notice, again, I'm going to take you back to Romans chapter 1. In verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. If you remember, Paul begins this discussion of the gospel with his statement. He is saying that the righteousness of God is being revealed. That is the tense of the verb, that it is currently being revealed. But now he says that it's been manifest past tense. Why is it, what does he talk about God's righteousness past tense, but also then in present tense terms? Well, the point is that God's gift of righteousness was foretold in the Old Testament. It was accomplished in the life and the ministry of Christ, and it's been made manifest in Him and is being revealed through the proclamation of the gospel. This, by the way, is why we should preach the gospel. This is why we preach it. The gift of God's righteousness and reconciliation with Him have been accomplished and manifested in the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, in His perfect life, atoning death and victorious resurrection. It is an accomplished fact. Man and God have been reconciled in Christ. But the thing that we need to re realize and remember is there's a whole world of people out there who don't know it. Why? Because this truth doesn't just naturally reveal itself. The truth of the gospel is not revealed in nature. Nature has enough to tell mankind that God exists, but it's not, it doesn't tell them enough about this. Right? The truth is not revealed in nature, and this truth is not revealed in people doing good deeds. There are people that think that, that that's, that's the opposite that is true. They believe that 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 people can get saved simply by you being nice. Have you heard the expression that you should always preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? The idea is, is that you can somehow get people to, to hear the gospel without ever telling them the gospel. But what we need to realize is the gospel is news. It is the good news of what Christ has accomplished. And the way that you reveal the good news to other people is you have to tell them, proclaim the good news. That's why Paul says the righteousness of God is present tense, revealed in the gospel, and as such is the power of God to save. Well, how does the gospel then save? Well, because Christ, because in Christ the righteousness of God has been granted to all those who believe. In Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteous requirements that we need to have fellowship with God is granted to the one who has faith. That's what we're going to see over the next few verses. 
Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in His Son, that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Paul explains the grounds of this righteousness for it being granted, and he and he. And he does so by summarizing man's condition. Remember, Paul spent all of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 3 through 20 to explain how depraved mankind is. He summarized this when he says, all have sinned. All of mankind has sinned, both Jew and Gentile alike, the religious and the irreligious alike, man and woman alike. It didn't matter who you are. It didn't matter where you come from. All of mankind is in the same exact condition. But notice he says, they fall short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I've read this many times in my Christian life. And as I have read it, I've just assumed that, that God's, that Paul talking about falling short was just simply in essence saying the same thing, that they sinned. I just, I just assumed it was just a repetition of the same idea. In fact, I used to hear people say all the time that they have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. I've heard it put that way. And I think I might have even said that a few times. But I think that what Paul is, is saying here is more than that. You see, when Paul says that mankind fell short of the glory of God, he's talking about the consequences of their sin. Not simply that they sinned, but the consequences of their sin. He's talking about the penalty of man's condition. The glory of God that mankind falls short of is the life-giving fellowship that we were supposed to have with God. All have sinned and fallen short of being able to be in the presence and the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. All have sinned, and because they have sinned, they've been excluded from God's presence. Why? Because sin separates man from God. This right here is an allusion back to the original sin in Adam. Adam had perfect fellowship with God. He walked in God's presence. He experienced God's glory in a way that no one else ever had. But he sinned and was cast out of that presence. He fell short of the righteousness required to be in fellowship with God. And so in him, all of mankind also has fallen short. All have sinned. And the results of that as we've fallen well short of the righteous requirements to be in God's glorious presence. We've been separated from Him, right? We've been separated from the relationship that we were created to have. We were made in His image to be in relationship with Him. This is the plight of humanity, left on our own, by the way. It would just simply go unchanged until we finally meet God. And when we met God, it wouldn't be reconciliation we'd experience. It would be His condemnation. And so all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but then it says, are justified by His grace as a gift. Mankind is hopelessly fallen and unable to do what is required to reach God, but then suddenly the gospel tells us we are justified by grace as a gift. We are made right with God as a gift. This is the good news. The word justified here is such an important word for us too. It's easy to misunderstand because a lot of people think when you hear the word justified, it just simply means that you're forgiven, that you're pardoned. And, and there's certainly an element to that, but that is not the thrust of the word. Because forgiveness simply wipes away 
the dirt. Forgiveness wipes the slate clean. It brings you back to even. But forgiveness doesn't make you positively righteous, which is required to be with God. Forgiveness alone doesn't restore you into a relationship with God. There must be something more, right? And that's what we have in justification. Justification actually is a legal term. Legally, it's the opposite of condemnation. When we go to before God, there is either justified or condemned. You see, pardon means you're forgiven and you're free to go. But justification means you were made right and you're free to come. Being justified brings with it not simply the absence of sin, but a sense of positive righteousness, a state of being completely right with God. This is the righteousness of God that Paul has been talking about. Through the gospel, one is justified and one is declared righteous. And as such, they now possess the right to be in the presence of God because he has reconciled them back to God. Justification is more than forgiveness. It's more than just wiping away sin. It's the positive act of declaring a person righteous, possessing the righteous requirements to be in communion with God. To understand being declared righteous, though, doesn't mean that we actually are righteous in our lives and our behavior. Because we know that's simply not true, right? It's, we've been, anybody that's been a Christian for very long will tell you that we still sin. Right? There are times that we still fall down and bump our heads, and we will continue to do so as long as we live on this side of heaven. It just simply means that we declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness has been granted to us. His righteous standing has, has been given to us or credited to us. And on that basis, we are, we are legally declared by God to be righteous. Now, as we follow Christ, we will personally grow in righteousness as God continues to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit and conform us into the image of Christ. That's what we call sanctification, where we are actively made righteous in our actions and our attitudes, but that's a whole different sermon. So Paul says that mankind is justified or declared righteous by, with God, not on the basis of works or obedience to the law, but by grace. And this is where the, the good news of the gospel begins to rise to a crescendo because mankind had fallen from the glory of God. Mankind is depraved and shipwrecked and separated from God, but he is justified. He is made right by God's judicial pronouncement and granted a perfect standing before God, not on the basis of anything that he's done, but by the grace as a gift. A gift. An overwhelming gift gift of grace and this gift of grace simply is received then by what by faith paul says here we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith our justification is a gracious gift of god and the way in which we receive this gift from god is by faith in christ this is where we should say, praise the Lord, right? It's not by works. It's not by rule keeping. It's not by your effort. It's not trying to figure out somehow to make the scales balance out in your favor. This is a gift simply received by faith. By the way, the, this echoes the, the, the work of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. 
You should hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 2 here. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This should sound familiar because this is a summary of everything that Paul has said in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the bad news. But then he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans. You're saved by grace as a gift. A gift that is received simply by faith. And notice there's not any additional terms and conditions to the contract, right? There's no penance required. There is no baptism required for your justification. There is no circumcision needed. There's no dietary restrictions, praise the Lord. There is no, there's no law keeping. It is simply this. You were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the glorious gospel of Christ. This is the message of hope. This is the truth that we all cling to as Christians. But this still doesn't explain, though, how it gets accomplished. It doesn't explain how God still remains just by, by pardoning us. Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift to be received by faith. So God justifies sinners by grace, but how does He maintain His justice in Himself? Well, it's through the sacrifice of Christ. Paul explains as we that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. The gift of grace comes through Christ. But I want you to look really closely here. Paul says it is through the redemption that is in Christ. In Christ, God accomplished something. And that something is redemption and this is an important word we we see it we kind of have an idea what it means what we need to realize this is a greek word that's translated right into redemption but it actually has a connection to the slave market it is specific term used of someone who has purchased a slave from a slave master and then set them free that's what this word in greek means that's the idea here and this is important for us Right? This is an important proposition because if you remember, recently we, as we read, you know, Paul said that we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. And, he, and we remember that this expression, under sin, literally means to be under the authority of someone or literally to be enslaved to sin. Paul had said that we we're slaves to sin. That's the human condition. We were born in bondage to sin, but in Christ, there is redemption from that enslavement. That's what it means for redemption. 
in Christ, the purchase that rescues us from the bondage of sin is him, him is himself. In Christ, we have been bought and set free. And how is this accomplished? Well, Paul says, we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is accomplished. This redemption is accomplished because Jesus himself, by his grace as a gift, paid the price for us. He purchased the price for us. Jesus himself paid the cost. Jesus himself is our redemption because he himself is the sacrifice. He was sacrificed to purchase us. It was by his blood that we were bought. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It is by the blood that we were redeemed and set free. This is how it was accomplished. God can set us free from sin and grant us righteous standing because Christ himself paid our debt. Literally, he died for us. He suffered and died for us. That's why the doctrine of the incarnation is such an important doctrine to us. Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, came into the world, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, took on a full human nature, lived the perfect righteous life that we couldn't live, keeping the law that we couldn't keep, fulfilling the covenant of works that we couldn't fulfill, and then earned a righteous standing with God that we could never earn on our own. And on that basis, He traded places with us and became our substitute before God the Father. And by faith in Him, and by, his, by our faith in His works, our sins are credited to Him, and His righteous standing before God is credited to us, not by works, but as a gift. And this transaction was paid for and secured by the very blood of Christ. The new covenant that all of the Old Testament saints were looking forward to and that all of us hope in now was inaugurated by the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't simply set a sinner free as if it was no big deal. God did justice and he punished sin by pouring out his wrath on his own son for us. Again, look at the language. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. God Himself did this. God the Father Himself put His own beloved Son forward for our sin. God Himself paid the price. God did for us all the things we couldn't do for ourselves. And notice, notice this word propitiation. The word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. God himself put his own son forward as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The idea that propitiation is, is a sacrifice given to appease the wrath of God. God, whose wrath has been revealed, as Paul says, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that God himself by His grace, puts forward the sacrifice required to appease that wrath so that by faith, those who deserve His wrath can be justified. That's the divine scandal. But there's actually more to it than simply this. The word 
that gets translated as propitiation actually means, from the Greek, it means the mercy seat of God. Christ not only is a sacrifice for sin, but he is the mercy seat of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is Christ himself is the meeting place of God and man. You see, the meeting place between God and man before Christ was the temple. Right? And in the temple, they had this big room called the holy place where the, where the priests were to do their work. But then there was connected to this the most holy place. And the most holy place was, was where God's presence was supposed to reside. And this most holy place and the holy place were separated by this huge veil on which were embroidered cherubim. This signified the separation between God and men ever since the time of the garden. And inside the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in between two more cherubim, was called the mercy seat of God. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a priest, after performing ritual purification, he was allowed to come into the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of Israel. The mercy seat was the meeting place of God and man. This was the place where God and man came together for the purpose of covering man's sin so that mankind could be a little closer to God. And historically speaking, once a year, for a brief moment in time, God and man were able to be together. For a brief moment, once a year, mankind and God could be in the same presence. And then it was over until the next year. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is the Hilaseirion. That he is the mercy seat. That's what the language is telling us. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is not only this atoning sacrifice, but he himself is the very meeting place of God and man. That Jesus Christ is the intersecting point where God and man have come back together. Jesus is the point in which God and man have been reconciled again. That's what Paul's pointing to in that he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. By the blood of Christ, God and man are back together in fellowship, not just one day a year, but permanently by the atonement of Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They have been kicked out of the presence of God, but now in Christ Jesus are made righteous and are able to come back into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. Christ Jesus is the center point of all things. Christ Jesus is the center of our theology. That's why we say very clearly and explicitly, there is no other way but Christ. That's why Jesus himself said there that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Because he is the meeting place, the intersecting point of God and man. He is not only the theanthropos or the God-man, he is the mercy seat of God. And through his own sacrifice, God and man can now be back in fellowship. 
the gulf that separated God and man has been spanned in Christ. The veil symbolized, that symbolized our separation has been torn in two because Jesus is the propitiation and the mercy seat of God where God and man come together. By the blood of Christ's atonement for sin, right? by His blood, that atonement that was made once a year is now made once and for all. And the relationship between God and man has been restored. Mankind is justified by God's grace through faith in Christ, who is our redemption, our propitiation, and our hope. Jesus, as we say, or as we sing, paid it all. And on that basis, then, we are made righteous before God. And because of that, the righteousness of God is vindicated. His righteousness through Christ Jesus is vindicated, as Paul says. This was to show God's righteousness because of His divine forbearance. He had passed over the former sins. It was to show the righteousness that at the present time, so that He might be, be the just, be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. In Christ, the righteous character of God is confirmed and vindicated. In Christ, God's righteousness is upheld. Because through Christ and the sacrifice, God was able to bring pardon to those who have faith. At the same time, He was able to preserve His justice. God in the gospel, through the plan of redemption secured by Christ, proves that He is just. Because He, by pouring out His wrath on His Son, the wrath that we deserve for our sin that was credited to Christ, God satisfied the demands of his own righteousness and justice in the law. You understand that. That's, that is the truth, I think, that sometimes it's so easy to, and so often to overlook. That we didn't just simply get a pardon and, okay, it's not a big deal. Jesus paid the penalty. Right? God did dispense judgment. Somebody got punished for what you did. By punishing our sin in Christ, He upholds His perfect standard because justice must be done and sin must be punished. But not only is God just, but He's also the justifier. Right? He is the one who is able, because of the sacrifice of Christ, to issue judicial declaration of justification. God is just and the justifier of the unjust who have faith in Christ. Through Christ's sacrifice, righteousness is completely upheld because sin is punished and the sinner is set free. That is how God, who is perfect, is able to then have fellowship with sinful man through the finished work of Christ on the cross. But then there's another thing that we overlook so easily when we read through this passage of Romans. He says this, is how, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Remember, the Old Testament saints were trusting in God by faith for their redemption, but Christ's atonement had not come yet to pay for their sins. And what we see is that God is patiently, He had waited until the coming of Christ. He withheld His judgment of their sins, of the Old Testament believers. That's what, that's what forbearance is, by the way, right? Forbearance is like a loan term or a financial term. It is, a, it is where you wait for your demand for payment. Forbearance is when you put off the deadline for payment. God put off the demand for payment for His sins so that Christ's atoning work could be applied retroactively to those who had faith in Him looking forward for Christ. 
This is why we can affirm that God's plan of salvation has never changed. Anyone who has ever been saved and whoever will be saved are saved on the same basis by faith alone and by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone because that's the gospel. Now with that, what we need to realize is the truth is that if you are alive right now and you are not in Christ, you are in this moment experiencing God's divine forbearance. Did you know that? Anyone that you know that's not in Christ is in this moment, if they're alive today, are experiencing God's divine forbearance because God is, is not demanding payment from them for their sins right now. Which means you still have an opportunity. You still have an opportunity to repent and believe. But rest assured, a time will come. It could be today, it could be 50 years from now. But His forbearance will be over and you will step across into eternity and you will meet God face to face and His righteous standard will be upheld and payment will be demanded for your sins and it will be either paid in full by Christ or it will be paid in eternity by you. If you're not in Christ, there will be no forgiveness and no more forbearance and no grace period. You will spend eternity paying for your sins. But if you do believe, then you will be welcomed home as family because your, 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 your accounts will have been settled in Christ and you'll be made righteous by faith in Jesus. And so we call everyone to repent and believe the gospel. Now with that, just wrapping up, let's talk about a couple of conclusions that we can, we can get from such a gigantic, monumental passage as this. There's a lot we could talk about here, but let me give you three things that I think we should take home and hold on to. Number one, salvation is a miraculous work of God alone. If you look at it from beginning to end, salvation is 100% His work. He's the one that had to initiate it. He's the one that had to, to put the propitiation forward. He is the one that had to finish it. It's 100% the work of God. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing we bring to the table. So salvation is 100% a miraculous work of God. Number, the, the second thing is salvation is a gracious gift from God. Lest we forget. I know that for me, there's something in me at times, it just wants to think, okay, Lord, thank you for what you did. Now I've got it, right? And that when I fall down and make a mess of things, I think, oh, God must hate me now because I've, you know, I've sinned. Forgetting that I didn't save myself to start with. I'm not going to keep myself saved by my own efforts either. Absolutely, I'm called to walk in holiness and obedience, right, as fruit of my salvation. But that's not the root of my salvation. Right? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I, and, and I repeat it so often because what, what, what you will see when you encounter other people out in the world is legalism. There's a movement called the, the Torah Observant Movement right now that's going around Christianity. It's all over social media. And they say, oh yeah, oh you're saved by grace, but you have to obey the Torah too. I said, you obviously didn't read the book of Galatians then, right? We're saved by grace as a gift. And then the last one is it's simply received by faith. This is the, the hard part, right? This is the hard part. It's not 
It's not received by you doing penance for your evil deeds. It's not received by you somehow, you know, having to go meet with somebody in a, in a dark corner and tell them all the sins that you've committed. It is by, by faith, repentance and faith. You turn from your old life and your self-righteousness and put your faith in God. Right? That's the good news that Paul has been pointing us to. So Paul, walking us through the, the gospel, has told us the bad news. Now we're staring the good news in, in the face. And we'll continue to unpack that as we go along. But let us not then, as we walk out of here, right? Because every one of us are going to walk out of here, go have lunch, right? And then most of us will probably go and hang out with friends or whatever. And then we're going to turn on the TV and we're going to watch the game. It's going to be exciting, you know. Um, and th there are going to be people that are going to be very happy. And there are going to be people that are going to be really irritated. Everybody's going to think that the refs are against their team, right? And then we're going to go to work tomorrow on Monday and then go back to life. Let us not walk out of here today unchanged. Let us not leave this place not staring the gospel full on in the face. Right? What you deserved, what you rightly deserved by what your own efforts is for God to, to say, never mind, and then just allow you to walk yourself into eternity, into oblivion. But by His grace and the counsel of His will, He's decided to change your heart and then to bring somebody into your life to proclaim the gospel. And you've believed and have been saved. And it was all done for you by God Himself. And now the call on your life is to walk in obedience and then go and share that message. Somebody's, I like this analogy that we simply, we, we're not better than everybody else in the world around us. We have no right to, to walk with our noses stuck in the air. What we are, are blind beggars who have been shown where the food is. And we've been told to go out and find more blind beggars and, and bring them back and show them where the food is. That's simply what we are. So let us be that. Let us be the light that God is calling us to be. Let us be the church that God's calling us to be. Because there is no other hope in the world but this hope in Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.